Hello and welcome to This May Hurt a Bit. My name is James Strayer and this is... John C. Myers. And this is a bonus episode just in time for Twin Peaks Day, all about the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. Why am I talking this way? Well, it just didn't seem as fitting as an opening for the moody soap opera horror show that is Twin Peaks as our regular intro. So John and I have flirted with the idea of doing a Twin Peaks show for a while. I think it's just been kind of this, uh, we, we both love to find actors that are in the kind of 80s and 90s horror movies that popped up in Twin Peaks and always call that out. And uh, I don't know, we just kind of joked about it for a long time. And then I realized that Twin Peaks Day was coming up. That is February 24th. Every year, the day that Dale Cooper drives into Twin Peaks, and I just thought, like, well, let's try this out and see what happens. And if nothing else, it's a bonus episode. Much like the pilot was filmed as kind of a TV movie to see if it would get picked up. If people like this, we'll we'll keep going and maybe put it behind a Patreon, maybe do something with it. I don't know. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. And uh, first... John, what is your history with Twin Peaks? Uh, well, I watched it on TV. Yeah. Uh, so I had that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, like I, I, I have a distinct memory of watching that movie with my family uh, when it when it aired. Mm-hmm. I, I had my first fried egg sandwich what? and uh, sitting on the hearth watching uh, watching Twin Peaks and mm-hmm. and immediately like like falling in love with it. Yeah. That just opened up a world of David Lynch and. Yeah. Which was my gateway into horror, oddly enough. Right. That was the first that that made me go, oh, this feeling this way isn't too bad. This is kind of cool to be scared. Yeah. I will can get into that later. Sure. Safe to say it's your it was your first lynch. It was my first lynch and like the first show I got super obsessed with. Right. Like now being a fandom in a fandom or something is just sort of par for the course. Mm -hmm. But. I, it was the first one that I was like totally just obsessed with. Twin Peaks fandom in in the early 90s was definitely uh, sweeping the nation, as they say. And it was like an obsessive thing. It was, you know, appointment television. You had to be there when it was on and people would have watch parties and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't the first show to have that, but it was like absolutely in the pop culture zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Uh, who killed Laura Palmer? Do you so you watched it when it was first on and then did you kind of like uh, rewatch it later on in college or or something like that? Yeah, because we we recorded um, all the episodes on VHS. In my mind, I still know the season two tape two where you figure out who Laura Palmer's killer is. Nice. Like that tape to me was cursed. Yeah, (laughs) it's like it was so scary. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. But yeah, we record all of them. And I and I checked them out a few years later after they aired and then like got way into it again. Mm -hmm. I think I was in high school at that point and then it had been a then i like just sort of let it go for a long time right and then i then picked it up again uh in my 20s a bit yeah but it's like it's something it's something i I like i like watching the show picked up here and there but it's it's comes up in conversations and i still think about it a lot yeah for sure and that's that says something for a show from the from the 90s from the early 90s yeah that you could finish in a weekend essentially yeah yeah and it's uh you know still very much in the conversation about you know serialized television horror television um mm-hmm. you know not saying anything new here but it is definitely one of those like you know we wouldn't have the prestige television now if it wasn't for twin peaks yeah, for 
for good or ill. Right. It goes back uh, a long way to Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I remember watching it when it first aired as well. So that would have been 1991. I would have been 12 years old. Uh, I watched it with my mom, who is pretty into it. I didn't watch every single episode, I remember, and I think some of them I was just sort of like shuffled out of the room as some of the more uh, violent parts, I I think. I do remember being on vacation with my family in Florida. My mom was very much one of those people of, you know, if if there's going to be a family dinner, we're going to have family dinner. But we were out to dinner one night, and she was getting kind of antsy, and it was all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, let's get that check and go home because Twin Peaks is going to be on TV like <laughs> any second now. So yeah, I, I love that as a, as a thing. I mean, like that's bygone, but I remember when I graduated graduated like eighth grade yeah. was the night of the Cheers finale. Oh, wow. And they were like, all right, we're going to get through this real quick so we can all get home and watch Cheers. Like, yeah, your child, you know, achieve. Don't worry about it because <laughs> something's going to happen with Sam. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it is true. Like my, I, I don't think the rest of my family followed along. I think it was just my sister and I nice. that got super into it. I, I just sort of dabbled around with it in high school as I started getting into David Lynch. Then in college, I watched it all the way through. And then a few years later, I watched it all the way through again. And the hooks were in me. But then I just became one of those like Twin Peaks fandom people. And mm-hmm. I will admit, I always say this, of all the fandoms out there, Twin Peaks fans are pretty decent like oh, absolutely. you know they're yeah. like they're obsessive dorks but it's not like there's and and this is a broad statement i'm sure people have experienced bad situations online of, because it's the internet but like i don't see a lot of as they call it, toxic fandom among twin peaks fans they're mm-hmm. all pretty mm-hmm. gentle people and i always come back to the fact of like Wow, that's kind of amazing considering our favorite show is about the rape and murder of a 17-year-old girl. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's some grim subject matter. I, I've I've always appreciated the weird Twin Peaks community. And, uh, you know, I've got a stack of books over there about th- not, not just theories, but just interviews. You know, I, yeah. I've collected some of the wrapped in plastic magazines from the 90s. The one pop figure i have is dale cooper because i think those <laughs> things are so stupid but i was just like oh, the funko pops yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah they're not for me anyway but i was uh-huh. like 10 bucks for dale cooper i gotta get that i um, get it yeah I, get it. I you know i got the vinyl records so yeah it's just it's it's been in my blood for a long time now yeah well it's i mean it was certainly you know new television at the time but it's also I mean, obviously, the landscape is a lot different, but I think, you know, you're talking about the the, the subject matter, whatever, is that it's about so much more than that. Yes. You know, and, and they never obviously they never wanted to solve the case or whatever. But it's also for so many things now, so many outgrowths of it that have become perhaps cynically. I'm looking at you, Damon Lindelhoff. Mm-hmm. Puzzle box television. Yes. Where it's just about solving this little mystery and freaking out over every scene. And boy, we're going to have screenshots on social media, people circling different things in a shot to be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Twin Peaks certainly has that. Mm-hmm. It's more experiential, I would say, than like plot. You know, like this, this means this, this means this, this is going to be whatever. It's more just like the the presentation of it. Mm-hmm. And and that so much of this stuff remains amb- ambiguous. Yes. Even after years and years and years of thinking about this, like I can tell you yes black lodge what is the black lodge i don't know yeah you know i'm sure others can you know like you said there you've got tons and tons of books people have gotten way into it but there's just always more onion to peel back on this thing yeah miraculously and and i've gotten to the point too where even though i find you know twin peaks theories kind of interesting it's not why i 
now want to talk about it. There are so many YouTube videos out there about what Twin Peaks means and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff's fun. And I feel like I am a little oversaturated with that. But at this point, to me, it's now just the feeling of clicking play and hearing that theme start. And like the feeling I have of being in the Twin Peaks world that I'm more interested in. And, you know, there's less stuff to argue about there, but (laughs) which is the fun of fan theories. But I don't know how many more times I can hear about that stuff. I've recently been more interested in reading and watching about kind of and, and I'm not the most Eastern philosophy type of guy at all, but like some of the Hindu meanings or the Buddhist meanings behind some of this stuff. And maybe it's my age. I don't know. But like some of that stuff has been really interesting to me at this point. And I don't feel at all qualified to talk about it, (laughs) but, um, but I think that's interesting given David Lynch's interest in, uh, transcendental meditation right well it's yeah it's it's uh opening your you to different perspectives Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's it i think that's a a cool thing about it i think particularly when you think about the way shows are put together now or in some cases not again looking at you damon lindelhoff in terms of like the way loss sort of changes course or whatever this certainly didn't have the same runway that that loss did Mm -hmm. in terms of the amount of episodes and all the cast members and all that stuff but reading behind the scenes stuff about it and and like what what changed even from like script to screen of the pilot and just how david lynch works uh as as far as a much more kind of reactive rather than controlling director Mm -hmm. in terms of like he'll be like there's certain things that I'm, i'm sure we'll we'll get into like certain set things or mm-hmm. whatever work he'll just i mean the the how bob came into existence exactly. would be like hey what about that that's kind of cool mm-hmm. um what about i bob? find kind of <laughs> what about bob <laughs> that should have been the name of this podcast <laughs> right. uh, uh but i but i just kind of find a little bit more fascinating yeah like learning how the how the sausage is made it hasn't hasn't taken away any of the, the joy and mystery uh from the show for oh me. for sure and, I, and on the heels of that you know i think it's like the third episode and, and we well we may or may not get there but david lynch working with mark frost and let's not forget to celebrate mark frost going yes, he through gets this left behind in a lot of this and, but you know that kind of stinks because it's easy to separate them to into the uh, David Lynch, the dreamer artist, like cool guy and Mark Frost being more the writer procedural guy. But man, they're both necessary. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mark Frost came from a TV background. He worked on a Hill Street Blues and he's got that episodic you know, 22 episodes a season writer style. And I always loved when Cooper wakes up from one of his dreams. It's the vision of the giant who gives him three mysterious clues. And then Mark Frost has to basically figure out what those clues mean (laughs) through the rest of the season. Uh I just love the idea of him being like, well, what the hell am I going to do with this? What's a smiling bag for Christ's sake? You know, that's his skill. And he's remarkable at it and i don't want to forget about mark frost as we talk about this this show yeah absolutely i mean particularly at the beginning too and then as, as you get other writers involved some of that like I, I was reading and again talking about the the behind the scenes stuff like when david lynch after the second season happened and all the the tumult there when david lynch came back and like read their what they had for the final episode for the red room black lodge stuff how he was like you guys did this all wrong yeah what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what does that mean? Yes. <laughs> you did it all like evidently in that, that original final script, there's like a, an evil dentist office or something to that effect. Yeah. And yeah. he, and he is just like, Nope, we're staying up all night and shooting. So like they shot for like 36 hours or something like that. I don't, I don't know, man. Oh, wow. 
But evidently, everybody was super into it and they knew that they were a part of something. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about w- with this show. And part of me was just like, what's the point of doing another Twin Peaks podcast? Like, I fully understand that. I was like, there's so many out there. I've listened to a handful of them. I like them. Don't really watch YouTube stuff about it anymore because it's kind of all the same stuff. Uh, I really mm-hmm. have to kind of like poke around. But if anything, it's just like, I don't know. It's just, I need to get it all out. (laughs) And, and, but, but at the same time too, I want to be very careful about, I think we were texting about this and I was like, I could do one of those dumb minute by minute podcasts on this, which would be exhausting. And I want to make sure that I'm not just like worried about like throwing trivia out left and right, you know, because that gets to be a little bit much too. And again, what hasn't been covered? I don't know, maybe, but I just, I just like, Talking about my favorite show with one of my best buds. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I I saw it in looking at this. I found um, I think it was the Twin Peaks blog, if it was, where someone like, here's all the stoplights that were shown in the movie or like shown in the TV show and what they look like now. In I love it. God like, bless that them. is so wild because you know what? I looked at every single yeah. damn. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are so many examples of that. There was. Uh, the the woman that played Lil in Fire Walk With Me. Yeah. She was impossible to find for so long and someone tracked her down and interviewed her for an issue of the uh, Blue Rose magazine that I had a couple of years ago. And it was, it, it sent shockwaves through Qu- uh, Twin Peaks fandom. Like, oh my God, Lil has been surfaced. And she's like in a minute and a half of the movie. Like people are looking for the kid in the high school of the pilot who does the funny dance out of the shot just to talk to him. That, that one baffles me because (laughs) as, as we talked about in like in silent and deadly night part two, how there was this big thing where people thought Eric Freeman dropped off the face of the earth. So there was this fine Freeman. Oh yeah. Yeah. Everyone looking for him that I get. Cause like, Oh, here's this guy that did this this wild, fantastic performance. Like I want to, I want to talk to him. I want to find out more about that. This is like, so how'd you do the arm thing? Yeah. Like what, what do you talk to that guy about? I mean, nothing against that dude, but like totally at that point, you're just like, I need, I need a section of Twin Peaks for me. Well, I mean, I was just about to say that. And I think, I think that so much of, uh, internet identity is I need something to make my, uh, a section or some factoid to make my identity about, I guess our, ours is horror franchises. Damn it. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Except us. Like we're, we're cool and normal about it. Those (laughs) other weirdos. (laughs) Right. But no, it's just like, I think that's exactly what it is. It's just like somebody not to disparage them at all. But like, they're just like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to be the person that tracks that guy down. Yeah. And cool. (laughs) You know, make it, if it's a fun story, that's, that sounds fine. But if it was just like, well, I just kept calling people, (laughs) you know, that's not that interesting. (laughs) Right. But, um, yeah, no, it's wild. People have strong feelings about this, you know, one way or the other about, uh, uh, strong feelings about what it, what that, what it means to them Mm -hmm. and how they want to access those meetings, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as, as I've said a little bit in recent uh, regular episodes, sometimes I kind of uh, don't feel like going uh, scene by scene. Sometimes that's beneficial, but I, I I didn't want to go scene by scene during this because we'd be here until 2028, me just trying to get through the pilot. And yeah, there's plenty of recap podcasts. Out exactly. There on this recent rewatch, and I think I've watched this show through, I mean, I'm sure it's over 10 times at this point. I've watched The Return four times, I think, and we'll 
you know, well, we'll maybe get into that, but let me tell you, 2016 was like the last great summer of my life. Uh, just <laughs> running home to get to Look, see. I'm, I'm hanging by a thread here, Dave. You got to make more stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, there were, I'd be at a, at a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon and I'd be like, it's 5.30, I got to get home. And it would be like, you know, 6 p.m. on West Coast, you get the new episode of Twin Peaks. My favorite was our friend Dimitri uh, was getting married on the night that episode 17 and 18 was airing and it was an hour away and it I was so frustrated but I was like I'm not gonna let Dimitri walk down the aisle without not being there but I remember leaving the ceremony and it was an hour drive back got home at like 10 or something and there was a forest fire here in Oregon and, oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, huh, fire drive through me, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I am driving through fire to get home to watch episode 17 and 18 of the return. And I stayed up and I watched, I watched them twice. So I went to bed at like two oh, God. that night because I just had to watch those last two episodes twice. Yeah. And as, and I mean, not to just keep with the preamble for 20 minutes, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. When that, when that ended, like I just, like it was like super late at night because my sister and I were sharing a, a Hulu account and like they watched it. She watched it first because the, she lives in the East coast time. Yeah. And, uh, so I was like, no, that's fine. I'll just wait till you're done. And then, and then I'll watch them. So I don't think I, and we had something else going on that night. I didn't end up watching it till like two in the morning, something like that. Yeah. And then just like sitting there in the dark, yes. like I just got punched in the gut yes. and just like, Oh my God. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's that it's like, it's, it's also that, you know, this was such a, a formula breaking thing when mm-hmm. it, when it came out and like it never really stopped doing that. Yeah. Like it got weird in, in, uh, it's a, it's a brave, uh, stance. I'm taking the twin peaks got weird, but yeah. uh, no, it, it, you know, <laughs> the second season perhaps maybe got too formulaic, but, mm-hmm. um, but like with the return, like that, this thing isn't just it, it's it's never been. Um, let's just serve you up what you know, so you can yeah. like clap and point. Yeah, especially uh, and, and the that's return. something that I've hmm. I've I think keeps it fresh and interesting for me. Yeah, but even you know that feeling of sitting alone in the dark at. 2 a.m. after 18 is more what I'm going for with like mm-hmm. processing how I think about this than I am like, what the hell happened? Yeah, that stuff is fun. Like I, I enjoy reading about that kind of stuff to a point, but that's not where I'm at with my fandom for Twin Peaks anymore. It's about the like the feeling and the ideas. Sort of a, uh, too long, didn't read of the whole thing. Uh, like basically this, when this aired, this was a very sort of formative time. I think I think I I, I have a more attachment to it. As I said, this is sort of the first show I was obsessed with. Right. And so that sort of concept of really digging in and like trying to, to critically pick apart what these different things might mean and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff and and the, the dream surreal logic and, and all that. Right. Um, and I think it's because it was, it, I had counted this so young, it's, it's, feels more powerful and special yeah uh, and to me up until recently and i feel like there's been an uptick in youtube essays one of them i'm thinking about in particular which i can't stand but most of twin peaks fans when they like have a theory if it's well thought out and respectful it's kind of like huh i don't agree with that at all but that was interesting to read you know sure, it's like yeah. that kind of atmosphere in the fandom and most people like do put a lot of thought into what they think happened and it's like i don't know it's not like it's not like reddit crap mm-hmm. anymore yeah. you know uh so 
I don't know. But either way, pulling back from the theory stuff, you know, which I'm sure we may or may not get into, but it, mm-hmm. it's more about just like, God damn, I love this show. <laughs> like, yeah, and I just, yeah. I just love that feeling when that music starts and it's, it's, it's a warm blanket to me, you know, about a, um, you know, a teenage girl getting murdered. Oh, one last <laughs> thought before we get into kind of like the first topic <laughs> at 25 minutes, you know, I don't, I don't want to belabor this point, but you know, there, there is something to be said about uh, if you don't want to listen to two dudes talking about, you know, the rape and murder of a young girl, I do <laughs> understand. rape and murder. Yes. <laughs> I do understand that. But, um, and if you want a little bit more of a women's perspective on Laura Palmer and the character, uh, Courtney Stallings edited a book of interviews called Laura's Ghost. It's a really fantastic set of interviews with different women involved in Twin Peaks. Uh, Grace Zabrinsky is one of the people oh my God. interviewed and uh, of course Cheryl Lee is interviewed and mm-hmm. if you want to have a little bit more of a female perspective on this tragic story which I wouldn't blame anybody for and in fact you should maybe seek that out uh, it's a great book uh, I really it's a, it's recommend a great book. it the, the, the Willow Caitlin essay fantastic just, mm-hmm. just a lot of great stuff through, throughout check that out so tangents will abound And Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking like, I don't want to go scene by scene, even though it might seem that we might, but like this rewatch, I, uh, I was really focused on the, the first 30 minutes of the show being such about creating a sense of dread. And that's one of my favorite thing is in horror movies. Like, you know, that's, you could almost go like cosmic dread. You could just go that, that sense of foreboding and different directors, handle it differently. And I cannot imagine a better sense of setting a setting of, of, of dread, especially in pure daylight through Mm -hmm. most of the first 30 minutes of this. I've never seen a ceiling fan invoke dread before. Yeah. You know, like that's what I want to kind of think about in in the beginning of this quoting from the the book approaching twin peaks which is a lot of critical essays on on twin peaks uh talking about the core element of the uncanny which is a a huge part of of david lynch um quoting here a core element of the uncanny according to sigmund freud is the uncertain status of familiar objects and surroundings uncanniness can be described as a feeling of disorientation and helplessness quote experienced in some dream state as well as in waking life and in intimate familiar surroundings that suddenly appear strange that that's a huge part of it is that there's just all these things that just feel off. Just a thing that, that perhaps with the ceiling fan that's kind of imbued with this dread without being meta or uh, winky about it, like television in general, like the fact that you would have a scene happen and there's just a giant deer head or yeah. elk's head in the middle of this table. And they're like, oh, it fell down. And then it's never discussed again. Mm-hmm. The, the flickering lights yes. in the autopsy thing, just just these weird little moments that just particularly at that time is not what TV was. Right. And so you as a viewer or off kilter for some of the stuff anyway. And just the way that, you know, David Lynch's performers have like this certain, the performances you get are like this certain way. Yeah. How do you as an act, because they're not really like natural exactly, but how do you as an actor get there? Because I mean, it seems like everyone loves working with him. Actors yeah. love talking about, you know, the, the their experiences with him, but it, it makes some of this stuff more acceptable too. Like that, that it's not, bad it's not like when you watch a neil breen movie and they have this kind of weird affectation (laughs) right sometimes it's awkward but it all kind of works Mm -hmm. and that's that's something that i think that first half hour does as well right there's just like this things beyond just like the the dread of a of a dead body and murder is that 
all these interactions are very uncanny. Yes. Like when Pete leaves and uh, his goodbye to, to Catherine is to just like rub her ear while she does not care. Yes. Uh, like that's but that's setting up their relationship. Like that's how you say hello to a cat. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, that all these things yep. just aren't quite what you're used to. Um, and I still think, though, even outside of the like, well, it was what television was like back then. It still works today. I think like it's still sure. Kilter. And those performances, those off kilter performances, I think, you know, not only do they set up the the sense of the weird and the uncanny, but everybody fi- like either intuits or slowly finds out about the fact that Laura Palmer is dead, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's a policeman walking into a classroom and then leaving a quick shot of Donna, who looks like she's on the verge of tears. James, who looks like he's about ready to burst out as well. It's those moments to me that something is about to happen, but the dam hasn't broken yet. And so they are mm-hmm. getting so close to that, that dread moment. My favorite of all of them though, is the one shot of the girl running, screaming through the high school in in the backyard. And there's something so chilling about that to me. And and I don't know, a friend of mine, God bless him, we just don't have the same sensibilities. But he said that he gave Twin Peaks a try about five years ago or so. And he's like, I couldn't get through all the crying. And I was just <laughs> like, he, I think he just kind of wanted to laugh at it. And I'm like, well, okay, this isn't for you then. And that's fair. Yeah. But to me, all the crying is about establishing that dread. No, and I think, well, I think it's it's establishing that dread. And then the, some, perhaps a weird thing to say, but the, the, the earnestness of it. Like, yes. David Lynch, like I, ha- I as anyone who's listened to the show, uh, can probably piece like it's real easy for me to take an ironic detachment from things <laughs> uh and whatever but like i am all in for yes. his stuff like no one's going like well that's weird yeah you know everyone's this is just them talking and and mm-hmm. like existing and, and being everything's treated very very earnestly like and i i like that more and more as i get older anyway yeah you know? And so I think that brings you in too that there's not any. I mean, and that doesn't say that there's no humor in the show because mm-hmm. even the way he does some goofy stuff, I love more and more every time. Yes, I think some of that weepiness, whatever, adds into the melodramatic uh, soap opera side of things. But it also, I think, helps demonstrate that this is a show not just about the mystery. Like mm-hmm. Laura's absence is at the center of all this, but this is about people reacting to that and how that meant to their lives, you know, what, what that meant to their lives. And you have certainly like Donna and James get into trying to investigate this stuff, Mm -hmm. but it's just a way to introduce everyone through this, through this loss and it actually affecting them. Some of that reaction though, like bring some like mystery and intrigue with it itself. Like the fact that Joe, the, you know, what opens on Josie Packard putting on makeup, Mm -hmm. just her reaction, just like looking to like hearing Pete leave or whatever. It just, yeah, they're already, there's like, well, who do, who knows what, what's going on? Who are these people? And then like, even Pete, I I love that Pete finds a dead body and then who knows how many hours later he's just sitting at his desk singing about two by fours. Right. Right. Uh, Pete is God's perfect fool and I love him so much. I love Pete Martell so darn much. Yeah, he does have one of the most iconic lines in the entire show. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. And I don't care how many times I've heard it. I still love it forever. But you bring up a good point of adding mystery to how people react to this and how their performances are, because there's also Audrey who sits there and almost smirks when she finds out the news. That's weird and kind of off-putting and creepy. That's Mm -hmm. probably the most egregious version, but I do love everybody in the town is affected by this. Even the principal 
who I don't think that we see the entire rest of the series. He's breaking down and crying while making the announcement that it's time to go home early from school. And I and I love that, too. And like, I don't care. Like, I buy that. Like, I'm I'm invested in this. And we can't get too much further without at least mentioning how dramatically effective the Angelo Badalamente score is in all of this stuff. Yeah, because I, I cannot imagine this show without his score and the melodrama and the sincerity and earnestness without Laura's theme. Yeah. And I mean, it was it was made before they shot anything. And I, I, I was thinking about that with. You know, the way that Laura's theme ends up becoming falling into that more sort of ominous yeah. uh, uh, theme that happens when Big Ed is talking to to James, then Nadine like comes out of the their their conversation done. James right yeah. away. Nadine opens the door and is talking about drapes, and the soundtrack goes down to that. And so that sounds way more ominous for this little moment, but it's still mm-hmm. it's that feeling you get in a dream, right? When you're like, oh, it's gonna be a nightmare, isn't it? Like you just know, like something scary is about to happen. We're turning the corner. Lynch and in Battle of Andy like are able to capture that. The dread of the location as well. I mean, I I think John and I are fortunate enough to live in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not going to say the Twin Peaks influenced why I moved here from Ohio, but certainly helped the feeling of you know the rain on blacktop, the wind going through evergreen trees, and you know when when David Lynch shoots that, it's something that's normal and beautiful, and then you slap that score on there and now i'm afraid of all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> right yeah absolutely not anything to do with me moving out here but uh i was thinking about that today when i was again like watching this in the midwest like wow like this, yeah. there's there's nowhere around omaha nebraska that looks like that like that's right. really cool I mean, <laughs> sure like now it's just every day and i don't care yeah absolutely <laughs> but, uh, um it is beautiful out here other moments of dread i mean yeah you've got everything from like the stoplight which i don't know why a stoplight going from green to yellow to red is creepy there but it it kind of is but Mm -hmm. all those moments just build and build and build and to me like the moment that it stops building is just the introduction of uh dale cooper like to me that's kind of like where we crossover into a new moment by then we have interviewed um sarah played by Grace Zabrinsky. Okay, before we get into Dale, let's just talk about how amazing Sarah Palmer is <laughs> for a moment. Like, I mean, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about her in establishing dread because she is just catatonic and so upset. Yeah. Sarah Palmer is Laura's mother sitting there on the the couch. The moment when she says, "Who's upstairs?" Your husband and one of my men. I can tell from the sounds that it isn't her. And it's just Deputy Hawk and Leland up there is so chilling. Her just utter fear in her eyes and the way she's made up and styled. It just it gives me chills. I I remember watching um, watching the series first through and then definitely in the return. And my partner and I were sitting there on the couch watching. And like every time she was on screen, uh, she would raise her arm and show that the Herod had stood up on her her arm. And she's chilling and wonderful. So key to the dread and it's it's hard to you know on rewatches it and, and knowing everything that happens yeah it's hard to to not think about that going fresh but like when they're making it of course they have no idea grace zabriskie has said that um in, yeah. in uh reflections an oral history of twin peaks was said that like she 
thought he was leading me, leading me in this direction that was too over the top. But I was like, whatever, I'll go with mm-hmm. it. And then I, you know, I saw it and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's right on. And it is interesting how, again, for, for how this ends up playing out, how mm-hmm. she seems like she's very removed from all this in, in this way that we, we were introduced to Laura being gone yeah. through her. But then when we find out what happened to Laura, right. she's on the phone. She's away from her family. Like the only way to yes. get her to talk normally is to full fill her full of drugs. And I just thought that was kind of, again, like the, mm-hmm. the truth behind a lot of this and then what comes later. That was kind of neat to see. Cause I think, I still think like not knowing any of that, that, she sells oh, this completely very tortured performance. She's great. And it's, it's something that as a kid, I don't think I, I necessarily appreciate it as much. I don't think I really started falling in love with, with uh, Grace Zabriskie as an actress until uh big love. Oh, sure. So I'd only seen her be like in weird roles or yeah. something like that. But then when she's just hilarious in big love, I started to see a little bit mm-hmm. more of the comedy of some of uh, uh, Sarah Palmer stuff. And side note, we're, we're, you know, the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer, I would like to preserve for as long as we can, even though, man, it would be still so fun to like talk about through the lens of knowing what happens. So if you're listening along right, right. now, and if you, if, sure. if you're listening to this and you think like, ah, oh, maybe I will dive into Twin Peaks, we got you. I've always said I will never, ever give that away knowingly <laughs> for someone who hasn't seen this before yeah moving beyond the idea of dread let's get into just it is staggering how many characters are in this show for this pilot and subplots that are introduced for a moment let me find Mm -hmm. i i wrote this down and i don't even know if this is all set okay so the subplots that are introduced into this into this pilot are the ghostwood estate sale who killed Laura, obviously, mm-hmm. Big Ed and Norma, and then their ancillary Nadine Hank love mm-hmm. triangle or square. Uh, who owns the Packard Mill? Catherine and Ben Horn's involvement, Shelly and Leo, and kind of the Bobby triangle, Flesh World, and what all that means. Right. Um, and then Roman Ronette Polanski crossing over the bridge, which is uh, that, I guess you could fold that into the Laura death, of course, but like that's kind of a lot of subplots for like mm-hmm. one like establishing show. Yeah, yeah, a lot is a lot of sort of seeds are, are are planted there, but I think it also it already plays with some of the the stuff it's already set up by the end at the beginning. Ed Hurley mm-hmm. is so much more of just yeah. like this man's man. Like he's like, hey James, like this is tough. Can I get you a coffee? You want to talk about it? It's rough. Then when, when Donna shows up, he's like hugs her and he's like, oh, yes. I'm here for you, whatever. But then we found out he's got secrets. It's like you, you find out that everyone sort of isn't what they seem on the level. Not right. all of it is nefarious, but at the same time, everyone's got secrets. Sure. And which is certainly soap opery, but deep into the mystery right. that like, well, we don't know anything of what's of what's going on, especially in how they structure it, too, because like you get introduced to these characters. And then of course, by the end of the episode, you learn a stinger about each one of them. At the very end of the episode, Harry goes to see Josie. At the very end of the episode, Catherine gets a phone call from Ben Horde. Mm-hmm. Close to the end, Ed goes to talk to Norma. So like, we've got a little bit of an arc, even if we're not spending time with all of them. Yeah. There's like a stinger at the end of the episode, just letting us know that they've got their own thing going. The, the only guy that is exactly as he seems throughout 
is Mike, <laughs> Mike and Bobby. <laughs> yeah, of just Mike. that the show plays with the archetypes a lot because you have as this probably progresses, you have all these like sort of things. Like I said, like you have this. Well, I'm a man's man, but I'm secretly having this this very touching, sweet affair over here. Major Briggs is a great example. Like you see him, his wife is like giving him massage. He's in his full military thing in the in the kitchen, you know, reading. There's some like religious iconography and stuff. But when like Bobby gets out of jail later. I'll be home this evening if you need a sympathetic ear. I don't need any damn sympathetic anything. You know, dear, I have no idea what's going on. More, he's, I don't want to say like neutered, but yeah. it is just this very like you expect him to be this authoritarian guy. Mm-hmm. James is like the softest biker in the world. Yeah. All the all the angry, violent people, the, the Bobbies, the Mikes and the Leos, they are exactly as they seem. And they stay that way. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. pretty much. I think I think Bobby maybe goes on a little bit more of a journey, but Leo and Mike are Leo and Mike. That's for sure. Which I, I, I again talk about like things that you notice more this time. The scene where Donna has snuck out, mm-hmm. and then Mike shows up with Bobby, and then Doc Hayward's like, "We're not drinking and driving, are you?" Well, we're uh, all pretty broken up about what happened today, sir. Besides, uh, Bobby's doing most of the driving. She wants to come down. Well, all right, let me go get my daughter. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and also, what's Bobby doing at that moment? He's yeah. surfing on the hood of the car. Yeah. Bobby's hilarious. doing most of the driving. Yeah. I was like, well, so okay. Good. Yeah. But again, like that's while that's hilarious, that is not played for laughs. Like everyone's just very serious. And that makes it yes. even funnier. Yes. Um, Absolutely. The only like reality that's maintained is violence or the threat thereof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know how many different, you know, sections we can break down the characters into. But, you know, you've got your 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 law enforcement. You've got mm-hmm. your townsfolk. Um Maybe that's about it, <laughs> really. Yeah, well, yeah. But you know, <laughs> okay, that's the Twin Peaks—the yeah. dueling townsfolk the, yes, versus town other townsfolk versus cops. Um, yeah, well, let's do a D and D alignment chart. Uh, you've right. got uh, oh my everyone's God. chaotic neutral. Yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. Well, Coop be lawful good, probably. Coop, Coop, Coop would be lawful good. Yeah, I mean, okay. So let's just like let's get Coop out of the way. No, I don't want to get him out of the way. Let's just like dive into how wonderful this man is. So uh-huh. there are there are two men that I look up to in my in my life. And one is my dad, Scott Strayer, and the other is Dale Cooper. Both endeavor to do the right thing all the mm-hmm. time. And I'm not saying I do, but I'm just saying I endeavor <laughs> to be that good, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dale Cooper gets the greatest intro, I think, of any like main character that you've seen in television. It's it is pretty impressive. The greatest 90 second monologue I've I've memorized it and forgotten it and memorized it and forgotten it, you know, over the years. And it's just wonderful. And you just really get a sense of who he is and uh, played by the amazing Kyle McLaughlin. And he's just he comes into Twin Peaks with a little bit of an like he, he's got an authority because he's very good at what he does. But he has such an aw shucks appreciation for the small town that he's going to be investigating. And yeah. as the show goes on, he gets more and more and more deep rooted into that town, which I absolutely love. The fact that he like that, that, that whole like you said, the whole opening monologue mm-hmm. just tells you so much of what you need to know about Dale Cooper. Yeah. In terms of like him just cataloging his expenses and, and mm-hmm. just getting excited about weird things and just being a nerd, frankly. But in, in this great way that you can't help but, but be like excited for. And like yeah. Kyle Lockley says that like when he's at the town hall meeting, when he's when he's telling Harry that he thinks he saw a jackrabbit, he's like, that was probably a snowshoe rabbit. He's like, snowshoe rabbit. Like 
he just it's like he learned there are other kinds of rabbits yes. and he's just like oh my gosh this is the coolest thing ever or when he is with Harry and he's like you know why I'm whittling okay I'll, I'll bite again why are you whittling that's what you do in a town where a yellow light still means slow down, not speed up. He's not making fun of their town at all. He's no. like, this rules. I love this. I love you guys so much. If and I'm in it's, if I'm in a car and someone hits the gas to make it through a yellow light, I think of that moment where I'm just like, <laughs> yellow light means slow down, y'all. Yeah, you know, that's not Come what on. Dale would do. Yeah. Right. I mean, I Kyle McLaughlin has said that Dale Cooper is the most like him. Mm-hmm. his personality and if you follow him, him on instagram that's very true um it's a combination of kyle and david lynch for sure just the the 50s americana ideal mm-hmm. yeah i just love him to death there's there is a bit in this pilot there's two scenes that i picked up on a while ago where i'm just like uh, kyle's still like kind of dialing him in mm-hmm. and there's like there's a scene where he interrogates Bobby and I just thought he was a little too smarmy and a little like a little too like I'm a lawyer interrogating you and it doesn't have the kind of like the love and the joy that he normally has. Yeah. This is no slight against him, but it was just interesting to watch. Like you could tell he was still trying to find the real coop. Yeah, well, it seems like Coop is a lot more like Joe Friday in in a sense, right? where it's like when it's time to lay down the law, it's just just the facts like yeah the other moment uh when i didn't feel was like what we get to know coop as is when he first sees uh dr jacoby and he really does not like jacoby and you can read that on his face and he kind of like looks down on him and i'm like Coop doesn't look down on anybody you know and that's why i love him that is amazing and that since since it's been a while since I've watched this, like so much yeah. stuff just gets mashed in my head. But but Rust Hamlin as oh, uh, Doctor Jacoby is so amazing because I guess like the the corks in his ear was his idea, and you just realize how goofy he is. Not just in, like in his appearance, but when he tells when he's like, "Hey, can I come to the autopsy?" Yeah, <laughs> like no. And then when the way he tells them. Oh, by the way, uh, Laura's uh, Laura's parents. But they didn't know that she was seeing me. <laughs> he says it with glee. He says it in the worst way you yes. would ever want to hear someone say that sentence. Right. Like it's like, like it's so like self-incriminating. Even if he didn't kill her, nothing good was happening there. It wasn't right. just like, hey, just to let you know, a patient client can confidentiality that you know blah. blah. It's very much like, <laughs> you know, hey, boys will be boys. You right. Know? Things like, happen. Yeah, terrible. But just that, like that moment happens and you it still feels like, yeah, he's a guy that lives in this town. Yes. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like uh, like wacko. Oh, here's the funny next door neighbor. Mm -hmm. It just is like, yeah, that's a guy that would be here. Yeah. And it's it's funny because, I mean, he's still he's a little bit elevated. Oh, certainly. Beyond the other characters. And something I noticed this time was that after Coop rolls into town, that's when you meet Jacoby and you meet the log lady. Mm-hmm. Prior and which I would say are two of the more eccentric people yeah. in the show. And I I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I like the connection of the idea of Coop being his own eccentricity. And then you find out about Jacoby and the log lady and one of my favorite simple lines of the entire show. Who's the lady with the log? I would call her the log lady. <laughs> I mean, that, that, well, Coop's eccentricity is almost like he's too normal. 
you know, mm, like he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's too, like, just like I said, the childlike wonder and, and like just being into trees or whatever. But you know, like, that's, I don't know. It's, it's not like I'm carrying a log. That's my dead husband, right, but, right. um, no, that's a, that's a good point. I didn't think about that, that that's that it, that's when it gets a little bit weirder in that regard, that it is like folding back a little bit. The, uh, the, the cover of normalcy of this town. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, we've got also in that same scene with the, with the town hall, like the mayor being a hundred billion years old oh, yeah. is is wonderful uh just because not only is it just like like a funny bit but it's also i think gives this town the particular character of like everything kind of runs itself like yeah. this guy this yeah. is just a uh, this we're just going through the motion like you you there are plenty of towns in this country that have had a dog mare right <laughs> at one point you know i'll try not to dip back into this too much but um the secret history of twin peaks by mark frost that came out right around the time of the return it's it's a lot of fun to read and you can just sort of pick and choose what lore you want to like pick out of it. But the mayor was an undercover secret agent with the FBI for a very long time (laughs) who had all these James Bond type adventures and stuff. And then he just sort of ended up there and like ended up just sort of like living out his days. And I'm like, I can't decide how I feel about that, but it doesn't really matter. But I don't know. I think between, between him, the mayor from the Powerpuff Girls and the Nightmare Before Christmas, I think those are maybe my favorite (laughs) TV mayors. mayors. Yeah. Or my favorite, uh, Filmed mayors. Yeah. I don't know if we can possibly go through every main character here, but like we got to touch on a few of them. So we've got, you know, Ben Horn, which is our, he's our industrialist in town. He's, he's Mm -hmm. kind of our like, um, small town, big bad guy, you know, and he's trying to push through the sale of land called the Ghostwood Estates to a big troop of Norwegian investors. And I don't know why that's funny, but it just is. And it, culminates on when the Norwegians decide they've had enough and they're not going to invest. You get a solid two minutes of a lady screaming. The Norwegians are leaving while banging on a bell as Ben Horn tries to rein them back in for his investment property. And, and this, I love this it. goofy ass song that appears nowhere else yes. in the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, that is very, very silly. That's very fun. Yeah. Cause Audrey being the, the bad girl that she is. Yes. Uh, I just love the, like the ham fistedness that that's delivered ahead of time. Where it's like, they are not supposed to know about the murder. No one tell them about the murder. Okay. Yeah. Works. It works. Yes. Like, I, there are so many other things where I'd be like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. But just the tone that this thing captures, it's just like, absolutely. This is, this is, this feels right. And part this of the tone the works for that. When the, the Norwegian guy literally says, is there something wrong? Young, pretty girl. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And she's looking all coy and everything like segueing to Audrey, but like she becomes a fan favorite for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, let's disregard this haircut because she gets a much better haircut later on retains the saddle shoes. Of course, um, there's a very important shot of her, like removing saddle shoes and putting on red heels Mm -hmm. early on in this, which she kind of like lives in for the rest of the show. And that happens, I think daily in David Lynch's mind before and after this, this, that's just like a thing he thinks about. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's a fantastic character. And mm-hmm. but she doesn't get a lot to do in this episode except for torpedoing her father's business venture, which can only benefit her. You know, right. if you, I was thinking about that. I was like, don't you want to be more rich? And yeah, she's girl? just you know? spoiled and bored and likes to likes to get into shit. It's implied that she's a close friend of Laura Palmer's, but how close were they? Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we'll we'll talk more about Audrey later, but um 
not a lot going on for her in this one. Then you got Donna and James. James is always cool. James as I like to cool. say, you know, yep. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. I remember I, I watched this when I, when I first was dating my, uh, my partner, of course, like we had to watch this together and she was just like, how do you feel about the guy named after you being like one of the lamest dudes on this show? And I was like, I, I'm going to, Ex- I'm going to, excuse me, excuse yeah, me, <laughs> excuse me, please wait till he sings. Yeah. <laughs> <later> on. <laughs> um, I've grown kind of fond of James. Yes. In his face in his big dumb face and yeah. just i don't have a problem with him anymore i don't even hate the second season arc that he goes through it's I hard have always skipped that arc i have always Not this never, time. Yeah. <laughs> i like i don't hate it i more just like kind of love it like i like bad movies i guess mm-hmm. um and i'm a completionist if you didn't kind of no, I can't <laughs> skip, yeah. you know, but, you know, so James and Donna are uh, James was dating Laura surreptitiously because she's mm-hmm. actually the girlfriend of Bobby. But James is like seeing her on the side. And by the end of this episode, he realizes and Donna realizes that they love each other in a very soap opera moment. Yeah, I was I put together more this time, like how much Donna is Jeffrey Beaumont from Blue Velvet of oh, that, like, yeah. uh, of that, like, I'm, you know, this small town person, but like, I kind of want more and yes. I'm, I might, I might do some investigating of my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she goes through a bit of that arc later on with yeah. her sunglasses and everything. But just that moment where when she finds out that Donna's dead, the, the, oh, the way man. she puts her arm up. Like, yes. Yes. It's so, yes. I, I, there's something I find very, uh, very moving about that. Mm-hmm. I, I, she puts her arm up and then James cracks a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Donna gets interesting later, a little bit more later on, but like I would totally agree. She is such an emotional center of of this pilot as far as especially with that dread. We get to know her uh, father just a little bit, Doc Hayward, who the actor is Mark Frost's father. Um, Mm. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a few characters that are introduced here, but they don't really get their gold until later. Like Hawk is introduced. He's fantastic, mm-hmm. of course, but he doesn't do a whole lot here. I guess there's there's uh, Shelly and Leo. Shelly and Leo. That's very yeah. important. So Shelly is a waitress at the Double R Diner. It's a place where everybody hangs out in the town. It's a diner. Uh, she's a waitress there. What I love about this, rewatching this one, I was like, man, these high school kids get up early. Mm-hmm. I think Shelly is not a student anymore. Yes. But her shift is ending at like what seven before school mm-hmm. starts yeah where bobby goes to hang out i guess he does give a like a little bit of a rundown of his morning he gets up goes running goes to practice then goes to school and has breakfast at the diner every day well, he he went and had breakfast instead of going to practice go, right there you go because yeah. he didn't feel like it right so uh. <laughs> so shelly works at the diner um under the direction of norma who we briefly mentioned before Man, I love describing it like this because it totally sounds like a soap opera. You oh, know? yeah, like, absolutely, it's, yeah. It's so great. Bobby gives her a lift home, and they're kind of like canoodling in the car and mm-hmm. drinking out of a flask at 7 a.m. and, you know, living the good life. And that she produces. That's she, not, it's, yeah, it's not mm-hmm. that, that Bobby's a bad boy, but she's like, hey, I'm, I'm done with work. Well, I'm she, getting, she does say, like, it's 5 o'clock somewhere or something yeah, like that. It's 5 o'clock in France, I think. Yeah, is what there she you says. go, yeah. yeah. So they are driving to her place where she lives with her husband and they get scared off because they realize that a semi truck is in the driveway and you know, the music hits and they pull back and all that kind of stuff. And 
I love that idea of that that image just being, you know, I don't want, this isn't as dread inducing, but it's scary. It's like that mm-hmm. idea of like, they can't go there. Who's this Leo and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then when you see Leo, I'm not going to say Leo can't be intimidating because he can be. Yeah, he does. But that, that initial Leo look again, that, he can be forgiven for this haircut. This, this Leo haircut in the, um, I mean, they shot this in probably 1990 or something like kind of yeah, some bleach yeah. tips. So Leo is the son of the casting director in yes. this show. And the son of uh, actor Aldo Ray. Aldo which I just, Ray. I, I just learned about. No idea. Exactly. So it's just like they were having trouble casting this role, as I'm sure you might. And they were finally just like, well, that goofy looking guy like Leo. Well, not goofy. He's actually yeah. like kind of intimidating looking like he's been reading with all the actors because his mom is casting him. Like, let's slot him in. Yeah. I think it works, you know? Yeah, he's absolutely. A good Leo. I think he, he was always very terrifying. This, he's still got kind of the, his, uh, silent night, deadly night, part three hair, the kind of curly, whatever, when they get rid of that and it's more just the slick back. Yeah. The slick back he's, works. He's like, creepy, but he is again, like he is a very physically intimidating person. And then the, our first real interaction with him is him threatening his wife because she's, there's a, there's a weird cigarette, butt in the ashtray, that's right. not normally what she smokes. Yeah. Leo gets worse and worse, but you need a guy like him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like he's, he's as, as we will eventually discover, like he was like the, the big, like it's, what are we doing here? It's Leo. Yeah. What are we doing with any of this? It's absolutely yeah. Leo that killed her. Ab, what uh, are you talking about? Yeah. Like, SNL even did a really great sketch of that. Cooper, listen, Leo confessed. Leo turned himself in. Well, that's good news, Harry. Another piece of the puzzle. Uh-huh. Won't be long now. And I guess the last major person to run through right now has got to be Sheriff uh, Harry S. Truman. Yeah. I mean, because let's not forget Coop's pal during this entire uh, show, granted, uh, named after a president, obviously. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite bits for his character in this episode is just when he and Coop first meet and they're walking down the hallway and Coop just sets up right up top like, hey, sometimes the local law does not like when the bureau gets involved. You're working for me now. Mm-hmm. And Harry just like, I'm glad to have you, man. You know, it's very like sweet and very much like these two guys are going to get along, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's another scene. A lot of this with Harry feels this way, but uh, that was another scene that I I think works real well in terms of like making this all feel like a place that that that's lived in place because the camera is in this hallway. We see Cooper and Harry turn, start walking down the hallway talking. We can hear them the entire time talking and it comes towards When it hits a certain point, the camera starts backing up and, and following them. That it's like this space existed before these people got in there. We're not just following what they're doing. Right. It's like that. I same thing with like our introduction to Harry S. Truman, Mm -hmm. uh, which is Lucy transferring a call to him and giving this huge diatribe. Lucy, the the secretary, office manager, whatever of of the police station, this whole speech about which phone she's transferring it to. It's Mm -hmm. overly complicated. He just walks over and picks up the phone, like the one phone that's over there. (laughs) Um, And I just I I like that moment again of like this weird, like setting up like how complex this is. And then it's just he just cuts through the BS and gets the phone. Yeah. But it all just feels very, very lived in and very, um, very real for being a very surreal show. Right. Yeah. And Coop loves that lived in feeling because in that scene, he says the famous, like what kind of trees he got grown around here. So he got, he flips on a dime from like, Harry, you're working for me now. I also love where you live, (laughs) you know, and that's it. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, cool. Well, we're, we're, there's, there's not going to be any static. All right, great. Now how Mm -hmm. about these damn trees? (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, they make they make a great pair throughout the rest mm-hmm. of the show. Very disappointed when he didn't come back for the return. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, that was I, a like tough blow. Robert Forster, always great, but it is that was a bummer for sure. We did leave out mm-hmm. a little gentleman by the name of Leland Palmer. Good grief. Which was very funny talking to like reading Ray Wise talking about this because he initially read for Sheriff Truman. Yes. And when they brought him back, he was like, like we want you to be lean. And he's like, OK, I flip to this page. He's crying. Flip to this page. He's crying. Yeah. Up here. He's crying. <laughs> OK. Mm-hmm. This is a weepy guy. I mean, talk about inducing dread early on. You yeah. know, like that shot when he finds out. Sarah is talking to him on the phone, mm-hmm. says that he's miss that Laura's missing, and the police cruiser like pulls up in the background is just gives me the shutters every time oh, yeah. I, I yeah. watch it, you know, because you th- know what he's about to learn. Yeah, and this is the most normal Leland will be in the entire series. Mm-hmm. Kind mm-hmm. of wild to see that. Uh because yeah. he is like he's when when like just even his reaction to um, the, I think it's the the doctor would have to go identify the the body. Whatever, whatever. Doc Hayward comes out and he's like, "Who's just 17? Yeah, it was it was like the same way you would react to like some horrible thing in the news. You know, like it's just he's working through his grief. But right. uh, yeah, it's going like the, he seems much more of the rock of the couple. And then to see how that changes, right? Um, that's true. Yeah. Again, the sort of subverting of of these these archetypes. Yeah, because these are I mean, so many of these people that were, that were introduced to are like you like you mentioned, like archetypes like here's our here's our big industrialist. Here's the, mm-hmm. you know, this small town girl that might be solving this mystery, like yeah. all the stuff that then that they they slowly reveals these layers to them. Mm-hmm. That's not that like they're still kind of this hyper real thing, but it's um you're already starting to see that happen. Sure. Like the, these people are starting to develop actual characters instead of just being like, like when, the fact that, 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 that they figure out the, the video of Donna and, and Laura, that's like, Oh, it was a biker. And who's the, who's the biker? Just like this again, the softest man ever. Just the, <laughs> yes. like, right, Holy bike. smokes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that about does it for like the main people. There's a couple that we haven't kind of pulled in here, Mm -hmm. but briefly, well, or as brief as possible, like touching on the different plot elements of the murder and what kind of, I don't want to say red herrings, but what kind Mm -hmm. of like mysteries it sets up moving forward, I think is Mm -hmm. interesting to talk about. So by the end of the episode, we've got one dead body and we've got another young woman named Ronette Pulaski who has walked across a bridge and it's important to note that she walked across state lines and that's what brings in the FBI. So she walks across a bridge and I don't care how many times I've seen that shot. It's horrific when she's walking back, back in this dress and she's got twine around her wrists and stuff. And And the the wounds on her chest are very like deep and upsetting. yeah. Yeah. So it's implied that she's connected to Laura somehow. In this watch, I was thinking about there's a shot of an old man that sees Ronette, the mm-hmm. first person that sees Ronette. And then I was like, well, who first encounters Laura? And that's another old man, Pete Martell. Yeah. And I don't know if this is going too far or not, but I'm just thinking about what David Lynch likes to talk about, which is like nasty stuff getting into wholesome 1950s mm-hmm. Americana. I'm just like, well, these two young women have been involved in sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, yeah, maybe not so much rock and roll, but like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> but like both these old 
kind of blue collar men are discovering these two young women that are very yeah. much in trouble about yes. things that are outside of the purview of the nice small town of Twin Peaks, because yeah. I don't think most of Twin Peaks knows about cocaine and um, sex trafficking and, and that kind of thing. No, but it is interesting what Twin Peaks does know, because I was thinking about like the roadhouse. Like Ed Norma at the Roadhouse, very open about uh, I, like there's totally, no way that you can yes. you can now like they're like they're just so in love yes. talking to each other. Twin Peaks, we you know it's a population. Well, it says fifty one thousand. I'm like, there's no way there's fifty thousand right. people in Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, but like it's it seems like a very small town, like people talking and and all this stuff, and um, that somehow no one's noticed that or you know they just sort of let yeah. that go there seems to be like a lot of open secrets that people just kind of like that's none of my business um and and bobby talks about that three episodes from now yeah but you know i don't want to get ahead of ourselves but yeah you're totally right it is interesting what people know and and, and don't know yeah so i think yeah you have this this much like cooper sort of being this this injection of outside weirdness to a town that was already kind of weird like you also have this you have i mean the whole thing is that here's here's this small town uh americano that's devastated by the death of this of this uh girl and this attack of this other girl which i understand that one of them is still alive but the the sort of like, oh, and Renette Pulaski, too. Right. And her dad is just some guy that works at the mill. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Laura, who is this more upper class, whatever. Oh, that's the real tragedy. Sure. Um, but I mean, again, she did die. So I don't want to yeah. make some kind of like phony <laughs> uh, classes thing here. Right. They're not as interested in what in in Renette. Um, mm-hmm. And she's yeah, she is in a coma as a result of the attack. And that that's the one thing that unites the two of them is that they were brutalized in a train car right we find out where this happened and it's a an abandoned train car outside of town and on the inside there's there's suggestions of it being i guess you would say like ritualistic yeah absolutely. you know not not a cult necessarily but ritualistic murder where there's like a mound of dirt there's a little piece of paper that just says fire walk with me. We have no idea what that means. There's mm-hmm. half of a heart necklace on and a little mound on a mound of dirt. Yeah. And there's um, blood everywhere. Andy cries for the second time. And mm. I love that. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's a sheriff's deputy that has to take all the crime scene photos and he breaks down crying every time he goes to one, because I love that in the first opening scene of him doing that. He's just like, you're going to do this again. Like the old man at the barn. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and then and I also just, we're, we're sort of introduced to, a little bit to the concept of him and Lucy being an item. Right. Just because I like when, when later at, when they're at the, the panoply of donuts. Yes. And she's like, and I had some decaf because Andy's been drinking so much caffeinated coffee. Right. Like it's this very much like old married <laughs> couple, even though they're not married. Uh, and Lucy's there so late all the time. I was thinking about that too. Poor Lucy. But they, yeah, it's, it's again, like they, it's this him crying while it's, kind of funny is also like this very it keeps it all very human that like these are still people dealing with this stuff even yes. though they might be these weird archetypes it's still mm-hmm. there's a there's an empathy and a humanity to all of this right and i think that's an element too that, that got people involved is like so it's not just a murder she wrote columbo like okay someone in a small town did that like now there's, yeah now you mentioned like there's this element of like r- ritualistic murder to it like what's going on there yeah. um and that eventually leads to like the, the town hall we were talking about earlier where, where I love how Cooper is basically like, all right, so just everyone be cool, but uh, you definitely have a killer here and it's yeah. probably one of you. Yeah. And it did happen at night. It's just this doom and gloom thing, but presented very matter of factly. Right. 
and uh, no one no one freaks out but it was like it seemed like a very panic inducing speech to me that was another moment where I, I I thought that they were still figuring out who Cooper was because he says who's the babe oh yeah and I was yeah. like yeah Co- Coop doesn't say that you know like I'm not being a prude I'm just saying like Coop would not refer to somebody like that as uh, you know he, he does not yeah he, it does not seem the uh, not the Cooper the, way the Cooper way yeah mm-hmm. so they they investigate the body of Laura and they also try to uh, talk to Ronette and try to form a connection here. They find a little teeny tiny piece of paper underneath one of Laura's fingernails that has an R on it. Uh, we don't know what that means. So that's that goes in the clue box off to the side in a scene where, you know, the lights are flickering because that was a problem on set. And they were just like, well, we're going to keep that. <laughs> and of course, the the fun factoid of of Dale Cooper saying like, Hey, could you leave? Give us a moment. And the, and the corner guy just says, my name is Jim. He's just, just Jim. Mis- yeah. yeah. He's just like, mishears it. <laughs> and yeah. Coop keeps character. And he's like, no, could you please leave? Yeah. They kept it in, you know? Yeah. Why not? Again, it's this, this weird uncanny thing. And it like gives, gives these, these scenes that, uh, 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 again, like this, uh, this sort of like places up in reality of like the, the, the lets it play out and lets it be awkward and strange and doesn't seem as even though like this is also not as fantastic as the show gets, but it's it's also surreal or whatever. But it also it's it's letting the, the moments happen to make it surreal and mm-hmm. it's not forcing anything. You know, it's like, yeah, there's this weird flashing light, but like that's such a strange moment. And they yeah. just are like, yeah, run with it. It's fine. Right. So yeah, as as we race towards the last thirty minutes or so, we we start moving puzzle pieces into place. You know, James and Donna come together. We've got enough information for uh, Coop to start looking into a what safety deposit box where they find ten thousand dollars in cash and a Flesh World magazine. Um, okay, just r- real quick. It's it's a very minor thing. But you're talking about how he says wrapped in plastic is stuck in your head. The way Dale Cooper, Kyle McLaughlin says, that's a lot of Girl Scout cookies. Yeah. Like he puts the emphasis on Scout. Right. It's just yes. such like a weird. Totally. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and then just like his excitement of like when they get the flesh world, he's like, there's a page that's marked. Yeah. His excitement is like, oh, this might be a clue, but it also kind of reads like, he wants to look we, just got our, we found my dad's playboy. Like, right. Oh boy. Like <laughs> yes. it's this very childish, like, uh, it's, it's very sweet. It's very endearing, but it is very much like, oh, there might be nudity. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, and the whole episode just sort of comes together at the roadhouse, which is a bar. It's a lot bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. That's Okay. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of townsfolk come together there. The aforementioned Ed and Norma are there. Um, Donna meets up with Bobby and Mike there. There starts a barroom brawl, but let's not forget that also the wonderful Julie Cruz is performing on stage and yes. her voice is extremely important throughout the rest of the, the show. Um, and I love her and she and, recently passed like yeah. a year ago or so. But also, the, this is a place called the Roadhouse. This is the clientele that is at the Roadhouse, and this is what they're listening to. I, I love that. And yes. again, it's just yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's not even it's not even like played up like you what have is this. 
Yeah, or or even in, even something like I, I I in lack of coming up with something good, True Detective season two, uh, where like he's Colin Farrell's at this like bar and there's a singer there or whatever that just seems like it's out of place, seems like it's trying to do something, right? Whereas this just seems like no, this is what what the world would be like here. Like this is absolutely that's what they're listening to. What yeah? What's the problem here? A synth heavy um, kind of like dream pop type of music yeah. i mean gosh she's uh, I mean, the same thing where like when everyone starts fighting there's a lot of people in the in the crowd that's just still like having conversations right at the, before it really blows up but at the start like they're just like yeah so how are you you know you just see him in the background yeah that guy speaking of, of true detective though it, this is i think that sort of feeling of 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 you talk about the 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 feeling of dread mm-hmm. true detective um without I'm not trying to spoil it but like uh, a thing people got pissed off about the first season of, of true detective is that it felt like it was going this sort of almost cosmic horror route mm-hmm. and then didn't and i think a lot of that came down to the way it was shot and done like oh, feels like something menacing is is like right on the edge of the frame and whatever and i think david lynch does that very well about like you're not real clear what's happening, but you know, as we said before, like with that sort of dream logic and the feeling that something bad is happening, that that none of this feels right. Like it is mm-hmm. that surrealist that 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 puts you at that removed from reality that it's uncomfortable and there's a fear to it. Right. That even in these in these mundane things at the beginning is still still very palpable. Still, yeah, palpable, unsettling. As the fight ends in the roadhouse, a guy that we've never seen before with like a pretty rad ponytail, like throws Donna on the back of her motorcycle and tries to take her to James. And mm-hmm. and so they're supposed to go meet up with James out in the woods. Coop and Truman follow along. So Donna and James meet up. That's where they aforementioned. They realize that they love each other. James has the other side of the heart necklace and he's like, oh shit, like they're going to pin this on me. Yeah. I have Let's no bury alibi. This. Yeah. yeah. So they bury it. They kiss over the, uh, the burial of their best friends slash lovers, uh, heart necklace. And then James is arrested much like Bobby and Mike are arrested, taken to twin peaks jail. Fast forwarding to the amazing ending, which is Grace Zabrinsky, Sarah Palmer, just laying there in her state again, sitting up and screaming, like just a bone chilling scream as it intercuts with a gloved hand exhuming the half of the heart necklace. So I don't know if she's seeing that like a psychic ability type of thing or feeling it, or if it's just Mm -hmm. intercut and I could go with, Either way, I don't have a strong opinion on it, really. Yeah, it seemed like it neat. seemed like there was it was like a vision uh, right. uh, of some sort, which is which is definitely like a very strange way to end the episode. Yes, uh, uh, to, uh, for some for stuff that's been all um, it's like off kilter and strange. Nothing's been necessarily fantastical. Yes, and then that happens, and so it, you feel a little bit validated that like, oh, okay, so there is something going on here. Sure, like there is perhaps other stuff at, at work here than just stuff being a little strange. But yep. uh, I I. I I think that's also extremely you know, talk about ending on a cliffhanger. Like, okay, so who took the, who took that? Why, do, why is she seeing this? What's yeah. going on there? You know, like, so, so as far as a, uh, a real TV show cliffhanger thing goes, that's, that's a cool way to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you're still like, oh, and it ends with all like, you know, like I said, uh, Harry going to see Josie. Cause you didn't know they realized they knew each other. Like they, they set up enough of these like little cliffhangers at the end where you're just like, there are like seven stories I need 
yeah to follow through now well and then i'm sure you you've seen the little frank silva reflected in the mirror yes there which absolutely. i did not see till this time uh, oh really a, yeah yeah that so, is a uh, an actor slash grip that will come into play right. later in the series, which is just I mean, that's that's probably just the best piece of little bit of trivia about this show. You it's know? so wild. And I think that just speaks for the whole show like, that like this. Uh, we already sort of referenced that like this moment extrapolated outwards into mm-hmm. this like this. Like, well, that's kind of creepy. What if we did? Oh, OK, well, let's just play with that. And then again, like reading reading the behind the scenes stuff, just really appreciating the working with the actors and, the, and all the creative people just to like riff on this stuff, basically, that like expanded outwards that like that it did. They they said repeatedly that, like this it didn't they weren't really under any sort of network control yep. or anything. So being able to explore all that stuff is is you know for for how seemingly locked in everything is now and 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 algorithmically tested seemingly that mm-hmm. i think that I, i'm a little bit more um wistful for that kind of stuff you know, sure i'm like oh yeah they they got a green light and they went off to the pacific northwest and shot and they barely had any oversight at all which never happens anymore mm-hmm. and they came in uh ahead of schedule and under budget so when you yeah. do that people don't really care you know <laughs> like, <laughs> like you just as hell. you do what you got to do. But yeah, that ends the episode and it was just as effective as, as it has always been for me. Yeah. And I, I wanted to check out, I didn't, I didn't know, or I, I didn't bother to watch it, but the, the, the international cut, the European movie cut ending. That, yeah. Yeah. That, that just like plops that ending on, which eventually gets, we'll, we'll see some of that later, but right. I just love that they were sort of required to like, well, we need to be able to, if this, we can't tell us the show, we got to re- required to perhaps do this just as a movie in foreign markets, mm-hmm. which is funny. Cause not only just did the show blow up in some foreign markets, like yeah. you know, Japan, Japan. And did and yeah. other places, but the Daimler's like, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the ending he came up with. Right. <laughs> and he used some of that, you know, later on for the show, of course. But yeah, that's, that's kind of a fun, like experimental watch. Like you can plop that in and watch like the last 15 minutes. Um, I've got the uh, Z to a box set, which has absolutely everything that you could possibly desire. (laughs) Twin Peaks extras. So, you know, I I watch each episode with the log lady intro, which Mm, we didn't even talk about, you know, but um, you know, the, the European ending miles and miles of behind the scenes footage. It's, it's fantastic. So yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's one that like, I, maybe put on my Christmas list one year or something like that, but it was something that I just couldn't convince myself to get. Cause I'm like, I've already got a twin peaks box. So many editions. I've got this, but I'm like, yeah, I still might. Yeah. Uh, I wanted, I, I bought it like mainly for the return. And then I was uh, like, well, I'll rebuy everything and I'll have the definitive set here yeah um so yeah that's the first episode i i I don't know it's just it's still you know some people argue it's it's the greatest pilot episode of all time i wouldn't argue with that because i'm so biased but you know i I think it's a pilot man it is so good it makes it, it makes a very sort of definitive artistic statement about the kind of show that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it again is this like real shock to the system of what TV was at the time, right? Which we we can if we keep doing this, can get into that a little bit later. Yeah, uh, a little bit more, but um, but it's also like it still it still feels fresh and strange even mm-hmm. even now uh, even, even now someone that's watched it a whole bunch of times right you know i think there there have been plenty of of good interesting pilots but i think this one just is so effective at what it does mm-hmm. at what it sets out to do it looks beautiful the performances are great and shot on film um, it just makes you want more yeah, yeah yeah which is unusual for the time but uh yeah it's, it's interesting to see how some of the how some of the places change like the the double r is so 
much more dark yes. in this one yeah. than like when it becomes this more sort of like stage a, a in main Lincoln. place in yeah. LA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, watch along with us. Uh, most importantly, like let us know in the comments of the Instagram post that I'll make about this. If you're into hearing about Twin Peaks or and if you want to watch along with us, uh, we're thinking about doing a Patreon for this. I have mixed feelings about Patreon, but, you know, might as well give it a shot, right? Yeah, so. and we're still, I mean, as you can probably tell, we're still sort of like, like feeling it out, but um, mm-hmm. we just kind of want to get together to talk about Twin Peaks and, uh, you know, perhaps can have a little bit more or, you know, focus in on, on certain elements uh, a bit more closely here. But we just kind of wanted to use the pilot as a springboard mm-hmm. to talk about some of this other stuff. Obviously. And happy Twin Peaks Day. And yes. I hope you all are having cherry pie and maybe drinking some um, Pursued by Bear wine while oh, listening sure. to this. Yeah, yeah. I've... Got two bottles over there. Enjoying some electricity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, being a woodsman. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. We may or may not continue on with this. Let us know what you think. If you're into it, we that would help us decide. Um, otherwise, uh, we'll just be back to our regularly scheduled um omen discussions here anytime yeah. soon well but, yeah uh, and this is this isn't like <laughs> this is not the other podcast right yeah regardless yeah. yeah right um this is just like a a, a bonus yeah uh, as we said up top so we haven't even gotten to the puppet masters yet oh my gosh we haven't even done a full moon entertainment at all yet so that's good gravy uh, yeah well, puppet that master. will get us the listeners. Yeah, that'll get us the <laughs> listeners. And there's like 12 puppet masters. So that'll yeah. take all year almost. There's, so. there's thousands of people just like waiting for puppet master 13 content. <laughs> right. Well, we'll be there for them. We will. All right. So until then, everyone. Uh, yeah. Let us know what you think. And if you're if you are interested in watching along with us. I mean, now that I've started, I'll probably just keep watching whether we record or not. But, you know, yeah. let us know if you want to uh, watch along Twin Peaks with us. And, or if you uh, just want to talk to Jim about Twin Peaks. <laughs> I mean, like, there you go. I like me. I mean, yeah. I, like, I'm, I'll throw it up in there as well. But yeah, I'm always, I'm always down to, to, to draw about it. For sure. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. Goodbye. Good night. This has been a Caretaker Press production. It was produced by James Strayer and edited by John C. Myers. Logo by Ethan Kimberling and music by Michael Arthur Holloway, who you can find on Bandcamp. Follow us on Instagram at thismayhurtabitpod and email us at thismayhurtabitpod at gmail.com. Give us a five-star review over on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>